0: chapter 9 of mcteague this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org mcteague by frank norris chapter 9 trina and mcteague were married on the first day of june in the photographer's rooms that the dentist had rented all through may the seepa household had been turned upside down the little box of a house vibrated with excitement and confusion, for not only were the preparations for Trina's marriage to be made, but also the preliminaries were to be arranged for the hedera of the entire Sipa family. They were to move to the southern part of the state the day after Trina's marriage, Mr. SEPA having bought a third interest in an upholstering business in the suburbs of Los Angeles. It was possible that Marcus Schuler would go with them not stanley penetrating for the first time into the dark continent not napoleon leading his army across the alps was more weighted with responsibility more burdened with care more overcome with the sense of the importance of his undertaking than was mr Sipa during this period of preparation from dawn to dark from dark to early dawn he toiled and planned and fretted organizing and reorganizing projecting and devising the trunks were lettered a b and c the packages and smaller bundles numbered each member of the family had his especial duty to perform his particular bundles to oversee not a detail was forgotten fares prices and tips were calculated to two places of decimals even the amount of food that it would be necessary to carry for the black greyhound was determined mrs sipa was to look after the lunch der gomazeriat mr sipa would assume charge of the checks the money the tickets and of course general supervision the twins would be under the command of august who in turn would report for orders to his father day in and day out these minutiae were rehearsed the children were drilled in their parts with a military exactitude obedience and punctuality became cardinal virtues the vast importance of the undertaking was insisted upon with scrupulous iteration it was a manoeuvre an army changing its base of operations a veritable tribal migration on the other hand trina's little room was the centre around which revolved another and different order of things The dressmaker came and went. Congratulatory visitors invaded the little front parlor. The chatter of unfamiliar voices resounded from the front steps. Bonnet boxes and yards of dress goods littered the beds and chairs. Wrapping paper, tissue paper, and bits of string strewed the floor. A pair of white satin slippers stood on a corner of the toilet table. Lengths of white veiling, like a snow flurry, buried the little work table. And a mislaid box of artificial orange blossoms was finally discovered behind the bureau. The two systems of operation often clashed and tangled. Mrs. Sipa was found by her harassed husband helping Trina with the waist of her gown when she should have been slicing cold chicken in the kitchen. Mr. Sipa packed his frock coat, which he would have to wear at the wedding, at the very bottom of Trunk C. The minister, who called to offer his congratulations and to make arrangements, was mistaken for the expressman. McTeague came and went furtively, dizzied and made uneasy by all this bustle. He got in the way. He trod upon and tore breadths of silk. He tried to help carry the packing boxes and broke the hall gas fixture. He came in upon Trina and the dressmaker at an ill-timed moment and retiring precipitately, overturned the piles of pictures stacked in the hall there was an incessant going and coming at every moment of the day a great calling up and down stairs a shouting from room to room an opening and shutting of doors and an intermittent sound of hammering from the laundry where mr Sipa, in his shirt-sleeves labored among the packing boxes the twins clattered about on the carpetless floors of the denuded rooms auguste was smacked from hour to hour and wept upon the front stairs The dressmaker called over the banisters for a hot flat iron. Expressmen tramped up and down the stairway. Mrs. Sipa stopped in the preparation of the lunches to call hoop-hoop to the greyhound, throwing lumps of coal. The dog wheel creaked. The front doorbell rang. Delivery wagons rumbled away. Windows rattled. The little house was in a positive uproar. Almost every day of the week now, Trina was obliged to run over to town and meet McTeague. No more philandering over their lunch nowadays— It was business now. They haunted the house-furnishing floors of the great department houses, inspecting and pricing ranges, hardware, china, and the like. They rented the photographer's rooms furnished, and, fortunately, only the kitchen and dining room utensils had to be bought. The money for this, as well as for her trousseau, came out of Trina's $5,000, for it had been finally decided that $200 of this amount should be devoted to the establishment of the new household— Now that Trina had made her great winning, Mr. Sipa no longer saw the necessity of dowering her further, especially when he considered the enormous expense to which he would be put by the voyage of his own family. It had been a dreadful wrench for Trina to break in upon her precious five thousand. She clung to this sum with a tenacity that was surprising. It had become for her a thing miraculous, a god from the machine, suddenly descending upon the stage of her humble little life. She regarded it as something almost sacred and inviolable. Never, never should a penny of it be spent. Before she could be induced to part with two hundred dollars of it, more than one scene had been enacted between her and her parents. Did Trina pay for the golden tooth out of this two hundred? Later on, the dentist often asked her about it, but Trina invariably laughed in his face, declaring that it was her secret. McTeague never found out. One day during this period, McTeague told Trina about his affair with Marcus. Instantly, she was aroused. He threw his knife at you, the coward he wouldn't have dared stand up to you like a man oh mac suppose he had hit you came within an inch of my head put in mcteague proudly think of it she gasped and he wanted part of my money well i do like his cheek part of my five thousand why it's mine every single penny of it marcus hasn't the least bit of right to it it's mine mine i mean it's ours mac dear The elder Sipas, however, made excuses for Marcus. He had probably been drinking a good deal and didn't know what he was about. He had a dreadful temper, anyhow. Maybe he only wanted to scare McTeague. The week before the marriage, the two men were reconciled. Mrs. Sipa brought them together in the front parlor of the B Street house. Now, you two fellers, don't be dot foolish. Shake hands and make a dupe. so. Marcus muttered an apology. McTeague, miserably embarrassed, rolled his eyes about the room, murmuring, That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. However, when it was proposed that Marcus should be McTeague's best man, he flashed out again with renewed violence. Ah, no. Ah, no. He'd make up with the dentist now that he was going away, but he'd be damned, yes he would, before he'd be his best man. That was rubbing it in. Let him get old Grannis. I'm friends with them, all right, vociferated Marcus, but I'll not stand up with them. I'll not be anybody's best man. I won't. The wedding was to be very quiet. Trina preferred it that way. McTeague would invite only Miss Baker and Heise, the harness-maker. The Sipas sent cards to Selina, who is counted on to furnish the music, to Marcus, of course, and to Uncle Oberman. At last, the great day, the 1st of June, arrived. The Sipas had packed their last box and had strapped the last trunk. Trina's two trunks had already been sent to her new home, the remodeled photographer's rooms the b street house was deserted the whole family came over to the city on the last day of may and stopped overnight at one of the cheap downtown hotels trina would be married the following evening and immediately after the wedding supper the Sipas would leave for the south nick teague spent the day in a fever of agitation frightened out of his wits each time that old grannis left his elbow old grannis was delighted beyond measure at the prospect of acting the part of best man in the ceremony this wedding, in which he was to figure, filled his mind with vague ideas and half-formed thoughts. He found himself continually wondering what Miss Baker would think of. During all that day he was in a reflective mood. "'Marriage is a—a a noble institution, is it not, doctor?' he observed to McTeague. "'The—the the foundation of society. It is not good that man should be alone. No, no,' he added, pensively. "'It is not good.' "'Huh?' "'Yes, yes.' "'McTeague answered, his eyes in the air, hardly hearing him. "'Do you think the rooms are all right? Let's go in and look at them again.' "'They went down the hall to where the new rooms were situated, "'and the dentist inspected them for the twentieth time. "'The rooms were three in number, first the sitting room, "'which was also the dining room, then the bedroom, "'and back of this the tiny kitchen.' The sitting-room was particularly charming. Clean matting covered the floor, and two or three bright-colored rugs were scattered here and there. The backs of the chairs were hung with knitted, worsted tidies, very gay. The bay window should have been occupied by Trina's sewing machine, but this had been moved to the other side of the room to give place to a little black walnut table with spiral legs, before which the pair were to be married.' in one corner stood the parlor melodeon a family possession of the Sipas, but given now to trina as one of her parents wedding presents three pictures hung upon the walls two were companion pieces one of these represented a little boy wearing huge spectacles and trying to smoke an enormous pipe this was called, "'I'm Grandpa,' the title being printed in large black letters. The companion picture was entitled, "'I'm Grandma,' a little girl in cap and specks, wearing mitts and knitting. These pictures were hung on either side of the mantelpiece. The other picture was quite an affair, very large and striking. It was a colored lithograph of two little golden-haired girls in their nightgowns. They were kneeling down and saying their prayers, their eyes, very large and very blue, rolled upward.' this picture had for name faith and was bordered with a red plush mat and a frame of imitation beaten brass a door hung with chenille portieres a bargain at two dollars and a half admitted one to the bedroom the bedroom could boast a carpet three-ply ingrain the design being bunches of red and green flowers in yellow baskets on a white ground the wallpaper was admirable hundreds and hundreds of tiny japanese mandarins all identically alike helping hundreds of almond-eyed ladies into hundreds of impossible junks while hundreds of bamboo palms overshadowed the pair and hundreds of long-legged storks trailed contemptuously away from the scene this room was prolific in pictures Most of them were framed colored prints from Christmas editions of the London Graphic and Illustrated News, the subject of each picture inevitably involving very alert fox terriers and very pretty moon-faced little girls. Back of the bedroom was the kitchen, a creation of Trina's, a dream of a kitchen, with its range, its porcelain-lined sink, its copper boiler, and its overpowering array of flashing tinware. Everything was new. Everything was complete. Maria Macapa and a waiter from one of the restaurants in the street were to prepare the wedding supper here. Maria had already put in an appearance. The fire was crackling in the new stove, that smoked badly, a smell of cooking was in the air. She drove McTeague and old Grannis from the room with great gestures of her bare arms. This kitchen was the only one of the three rooms they had been obliged to furnish throughout. Most of the sitting-room and bedroom furniture went with the suite, a few pieces they had bought— the remainder Trina had brought over from the B Street house. The presents had been set out on the extension table in the sitting room. Besides the parlor melodeon, Trina's parents had given her an ice-water set and a carving knife and fork with elk horn handles. Selina had painted a view of the Golden Gate upon a polished slice of redwood that answered the purposes of a paperweight. Marcus Schuller, after impressing upon Trina that his gift was to her and not to McTeague, had sent a Chatelain watch of German silver. Uncle Olbermann's present, however, had been awaited with a good deal of curiosity. What would he send? He was very rich. In a sense, Trina was his protégé. A couple of days before that, upon which the wedding was to take place, two boxes arrived with his card. Trina and McTeague, assisted by old Grannis, had opened them. The first was a box of all sorts of toys. But what—what— I don't make it out, McTeague had exclaimed— ''Why should he send us toys? We have no need of toys.'' Scarlet to her hair, Trina dropped into a chair and laughed till she cried behind her handkerchief. ''We've no use of toys,'' muttered McTeague, looking at her in perplexity. Old Grannis smiled discreetly, raising a tremulous hand to his chin. The other box was heavy, bound with withes at the edges, the letters and stamps burnt in. ''I think, I really think it's champagne,'' said Old Grannis in a whisper. So it was. ''A full case of monopole. What a wonder!'' "'None of them had seen the like before. "'Ah, this Uncle Olbermann, that's what it was to be rich. "'None of the other presents produced so deep an impression as this.' "'After Old Grannis and the dentist had gone through the rooms, "'giving a last look around to see that everything was ready, "'they returned to McTeague's parlours. "'At the door, Old Grannis excused himself. "'At four o'clock, McTeague began to dress, "'shaving himself first before the hand-glass "'that was hung against the woodwork of the bay window. "'While he shaved, he sang with strange inappropriateness no one to love, none to caress, left all alone in this world's wilderness. But as he stood before the mirror, intent upon his shaving, there came a roll of wheels over the cobbles in front of the house. He rushed to the window. Trina had arrived with her father and mother. He saw her get out, and as she glanced upward at his window, their eyes met. Ah, there she was, there she was his little woman looking up at him her adorable little chin thrust upward with that familiar movement of innocence and confidence the dentist saw again as if for the first time her small pale face looking out from beneath her royal tiara of black hair he saw again her long narrow blue eyes Her lips, nose, and tiny ears, pale and bloodless, and suggestive of anemia, as if all the vitality that should have lent them color had been sucked up into the strands and coils of that wonderful hair. As their eyes met, they waved their hands gaily to each other. Then McTeague heard Trina and her mother come up the stairs and go into the bedroom of the photographer's suite, where Trina was to dress. No, no, surely there could be no longer any hesitation. He knew that he loved her. "'What was the matter with him "'that he should have doubted it for an instant? "'The great difficulty was that she was too good, "'too adorable, too sweet, too delicate for him, "'who was so huge, so clumsy, so brutal. "'There was a knock at the door. "'It was old Grannis. "'He was dressed in his one black suit of broadcloth, "'much wrinkled. "'His hair was carefully brushed over his bald forehead. "'Miss Trina has come,' he announced. "'And the minister. "'You have an hour yet?' "'The dentist finished dressing.' "'He wore a suit bought for the occasion, "'a ready-made Prince Albert coat "'too short in the sleeves, "'striped blue trousers, "'and new patent leather shoes, "'veritable instruments of torture. "'Around his collar was a wonderful necktie "'that Trina had given him. "'It was of salmon-pink satin. "'In its center, "'Selina had painted a knot of blue forget-me-nots. "'At length, "'after an interminable period of waiting, "'Mr. Sipa appeared at the door. "'Are you ready?' "'He asked in a sepulchral whisper. "'Come, then.' It was like King Charles summoned to execution. Mr Sipa preceded them into the hall, moving at a funereal pace. He paused. Suddenly, in the direction of the sitting room came the strains of the parlor melodeon. Mr Sipa flung his arm in the air. Forwards, he cried. He left them at the door of the sitting room, he himself going into the bedroom where Trina was waiting, entering by the hall door. He was in a tremendous state of nervous tension, fearful lest something should go wrong. He had employed the period of waiting in going through his part for the fiftieth time, repeating what he had to say in a low voice. He had even made chalk marks on the matting in the places where he was to take positions. The dentist and old grannis entered the sitting-room, the minister stood behind the little table in the bay window, holding a book, one finger marking the place. He was rigid, erect, impassive. On either side of him, in a semicircle, stood the invited guests a little pockmarked gentleman in glasses, no doubt the famous Uncle Olberman, Miss Baker in her black grenadine, false curls and coral brooch, Marcus Schuller, his arms folded, his brows bent, grand and gloomy, Hys the harness-maker in yellow gloves, intently studying the pattern of the matting, and Auguste, in his Fauntleroy costume, stupefied and a little frightened, rolling his eyes from face to face. Selina sat at the parlor melodeon, fingering the keys, her glance wandering to the chenille portieres. She stopped playing as McTeague and old Grannis entered and took their places. A profound silence ensued. Uncle Olberman's shirt-front could be heard creaking as he breathed. The most solemn expression pervaded every face. All at once the portieres were shaken violently. It was a signal. Selina pulled open the stops and swung into the wedding march. Trina entered. She was dressed in white silk. A crown of orange blossoms was around her swarthy hair, dressed high for the first time. Her veil reached to the floor. Her face was pink, but otherwise she was calm. She looked quietly around the room as she crossed it, until her glance rested on McTeague, smiling at him then very prettily and with perfect self-possession. She was on her father's arm. The twins, dressed exactly alike, walked in front, each carrying an enormous bouquet of cut flowers in a lace paper holder. Mrs. Sipa followed in the rear. She was crying. Her handkerchief was rolled into a wad. From time to time she looked at the train of Trina's dress through her tears. Mr. Sipa marched his daughter to the exact middle of the floor, wheeled at right angles, and brought her up to the minister. He stepped back three paces and stood planted upon one of his chalk marks, his face glistening with perspiration. Then Trina and the dentist were married. The guests stood in constrained attitudes, looking furtively out of the corners of their eyes. Mr. Sipa never moved a muscle. Mrs. Sipa cried into her handkerchief all the time. At the melodion, Selina played "'Call Me Thine Own' very softly. The tremulous stop pulled out. She looked over her shoulder from time to time. Between the pauses of the music, one could hear the low tones of the minister, the responses of the participants, and the suppressed sounds of Mrs. Sipa's weeping. Outside, the noises of the street rose to the windows in muffled undertones. A cable car rumbled past. A newsboy went by, chanting the evening papers from somewhere in the building itself came a persistent noise of sawing trina and mcteague knelt the dentist's knees thudded on the floor and he presented to view the soles of his shoes painfully new and unworn the leather still yellow the brass nail-head still glittering trina sank at his side very gracefully setting her dress and train with a little gesture of her free hand the company bowed their heads mr Sipa shutting his eyes tight but Mrs. Sipa took advantage of the moment to stop crying and make furtive gestures towards auguste signing him to pull down his coat but auguste gave no heed his eyes were starting from their sockets his chin had dropped upon his lace collar and his head turned vaguely from side to side with a continued and maniacal motion all at once the ceremony was over before anyone expected it The guests kept their positions for a moment, eyeing one another, each fearing to make the first move, not quite certain as to whether or not everything were finished. But the couple faced the room, Trina throwing back her veil. She, perhaps McTeague as well, felt that there was a certain inadequateness about the ceremony. Was that all there was to it? Did just those few muttered phrases make them man and wife? It had been over in a few moments, but it had bound them for life. Had not something been left out? Was not the whole affair cursory, superficial?' It was disappointing. But Trina had no time to dwell upon this. Marcus Scholler, in the manner of a man of the world, who knew how to act in every situation, stepped forward and, even before Mr. or Mrs. Sipa, took Trina's hand. "'Let me be the first to congratulate Mrs. McTeague,' he said, feeling very noble and heroic. The strain of the previous moments was relaxed immediately. The guests crowded around the pair, shaking hands. A babble of talk arose. "'Auguste, will you pull down your goat, den? Well, my dear, now you're married and happy. When I first saw you two together, I said, "What a pair!" We're to be neighbors now. You must come up and see me very often, and we'll have tea together. Did you hear that song going on all the time? I declare, it regularly got on my nerves. Trina kissed her father and mother, crying a little herself as she saw the tears in Mrs. Seepa's eyes. Marcus came forward a second time, and with an air of great gravity, kissed his cousin upon the forehead. Heise was introduced to Trina and Uncle Obermann to the dentist. For upwards of half an hour, the guests stood about in groups, filling the little sitting-room with a great chatter of talk. Then it was time to make ready for supper. This was a tremendous task in which nearly all the guests were obliged to assist. The sitting-room was transformed into a dining-room. The presents were removed from the extension table, and the table drawn out to its full length. The cloth was laid, the chairs, rented from the dancing academy hard by, drawn up, "'The dishes set out, and the two bouquets of cut flowers taken from the twins under their shrill protests "'and arranged in vases at either end of the table. "'There was a great coming and going between the kitchen and the sitting-room. "'Trina, who was allowed to do nothing, sat in the bay window and fretted, calling to her mother from time to time. "'The napkins are in the right-hand drawer of the pantry. "'Yes, yes, I got them. Where do you keep soup plates? the soup-plates?' "'The soup-plates are here already. "'Say, Cousin Trina, is there a corkscrew? What is home without a corkscrew?' in the kitchen table drawer in the left-hand corner. Are these the forks you want to use, Mrs. McTeague? No, no, there's some silver forks. Mama knows where. They were all very gay, laughing over their mistakes, getting in one another's way, rushing into the sitting room, their hands full of plates or knives or glasses, and darting out again after more. Marcus and Mr. Sipa took their coats off, Old Grannis and Miss Baker passed each other in the hall in a constrained silence, her grenadine brushing against the elbow of his wrinkled frock-coat. Uncle Olberman superintended Hys opening the case of champagne with the gravity of a magistrate. Auguste was assigned the task of filling the new salt-and-pepper canisters of red and blue glass. In a wonderfully short time, everything was ready. Marcus Shoulder resumed his coat, wiping his forehead and remarking, "'I tell you, I've been doing chores for my board.' "'To der table,' commanded Mr. Sipa. The company sat down with a great clatter. Trina at the foot, the dentist at the head, the others arranged themselves in haphazard fashion. But it happened that Marcus Schuller crowded into the seat beside Selina, towards which old Grannis was directing himself. There was but one other chair vacant, and that at the side of Miss Baker. Old Grannis hesitated, putting his hand to his chin. However, there was no escape— In great trepidation he sat down beside the retired dressmaker. None of them spoke. Old Grannis dared not move, but sat rigid, his eyes riveted, on his empty soup plate. All at once there was a report, like a pistol. The men started in their places. Mrs. Sipa uttered a muffled shriek. The waiter from the cheap restaurant, hired as Marie's assistant, rose from a bending posture, a champagne bottle frothing in his hand. He was grinning from ear to ear. "'Don't get scared,' he said reassuringly. "'It ain't loaded.' When all their glasses had been filled, Marcus proposed the health of the bride. Standing up, the guests rose and drank. Hardly one of them had ever tasted champagne before. The moment's silence after the toast was broken by McTeague, exclaiming with a long breath of satisfaction, That's the best beer I ever drank. There was a roar of laughter. Especially it was Marcus tickled over the dentist's blunder. He went off in a very spasm of mirth, banging the table with his fist, laughing until his eyes watered. All through the meal he kept breaking out into cackling imitations of McTeague's words. That's the best beer I ever drank. Oh, Lord, ain't that a break? What a wonderful supper that was. There was oyster soup, there were sea bass and barracuda, there was a gigantic roast goose stuffed with chestnuts, there were eggplant and sweet potatoes, Miss Baker called them yams, there was calf's head and oil, over which Mr. Sipa went into ecstasies. There was lobster salad, there were rice pudding, and strawberry ice cream, and wine jelly, and stewed prunes, and coconuts, and mixed nuts, and raisins, and fruit, and tea, and coffee, and mineral waters, and lemonade. For two hours the guests ate, their faces red, their elbows wide, the perspiration beating their foreheads. All around the table one saw the same incessant movement of jaws, and heard the same uninterrupted sound of chewing. Three times High's passed his plate for more roast goose. Mr. Sipa devoured the calf's head with long breaths of contentment. McTeague ate for the sake of eating, without choice. Everything within reach of his hands found its way into his enormous mouth. There was but little conversation, and that only of the food. One exchanged opinions with one's neighbor as to the soup, the eggplant, or the stewed prunes. Soon the room became very warm. A faint moisture appeared upon the windows. The air was heavy with the smell of cooked food." At every moment, Trina or Mrs. Sipa urged someone of the company to have his or her plate refilled. They were constantly employed in dishing potatoes, or carving the goose, or ladling gravy. The hired waiter circled around the room, his limp napkin over his arm, his hands full of plates and dishes. He was a great joker. He had names of his own for different articles of food that sent gales of laughter around the table. When he spoke of a bunch of parsley as scenery, Heise all but strangled himself over a mouthful of potato. Out in the kitchen Maria Macapa did the work of three, her face scarlet, her sleeves rolled up. Every now and then she uttered shrill but unintelligible outcries, supposedly addressed to the waiter. "'Uncle Obermann said Trina, "'let me give you another helping of prunes.' The Sipas paid great deference to Uncle Obermann, as indeed did the whole company. Even Marcus Scholler lowered his voice when he addressed him at the beginning of the meal he had nudged the harness-maker and had whispered behind his hand nodding his head toward the wholesale toy dealer got thirty thousand dollars in the bank has for a fact don't have much to say observed Hyes. no no that's his way never opens his face as the evening wore on the gas and two lamps were lit the company were still eating the men gorged with food had unbuttoned their vests McTeague's cheeks were distended, his eyes wide, his huge, salient jaw moved with a machine-like regularity. At intervals he drew a series of short breaths through his nose. Mrs. Sipa wiped her forehead with her napkin. "'Hey, there, poi, give me some more of that, what you call bubble water.' That was how the waiter had spoken of the champagne. Bubble water. The guests had shouted applause. "'Out of sight!' He was a heavy josher. was that waiter.' Bottle after bottle was opened. the women stopping their ears as the corks were drawn. All of a sudden, the dentist uttered an exclamation, clapping his hand to his nose, his face twisting sharply. "'Mac, what is it?' cried Trina, in an alarm. "'That champagne came to my nose,' he cried, his eyes watering. "'It stings like everything.' "'Great beer, ain't it?' shouted Marcus. "'Now, Mark,' remonstrated Trina, in a low voice. "'Now, Mark, you just shut up. That isn't funny any more. I don't want you should make fun of Mac.' he called it beer on purpose i guess he knows throughout the meal old miss baker had occupied herself largely with auguste and the twins who had been given a table by themselves the black walnut table before which the ceremony had taken place the little dressmaker was continually turning about in her place inquiring of the children if they wanted for anything inquiries they rarely answered other than by stare fixed ox-like expressionless suddenly the little dressmaker turned to old grannis and exclaimed i'm so very fond of little children yes yes they're very interesting i'm very fond of them too the next instant both of the old people were overwhelmed with confusion what they had spoken to each other after all these years of silence they had for the first time addressed remarks to each other the old dressmaker was in a torment of embarrassment how was it she had come to speak she had neither planned nor wished it Suddenly the words had escaped her. He had answered, and it was all over, over before they knew it. Old Grannis's fingers trembled on the table-ledge. His heart beat heavily. His breath fell short. He had actually talked to the little dressmaker. That possibility to which he had looked forward, it seemed to him for years, that companionship, that intimacy with his fellow lodger, that delightful acquaintance which was only to ripen at some far distant time, he could not exactly say when. Behold, it had suddenly come to a head here in this overcrowded overheated room in the midst of all this feeding surrounded by odors of hot dishes accompanied by the sounds of incessant mastication how different he had imagined it would be they were to be alone he and miss baker in the evening somewhere withdrawn from the world very quiet very calm and peaceful their talk was to be of their lives their lost illusions not of other people's children the two old people did not speak again they sat there, side by side, nearer than they had ever been before, motionless, abstracted, their thoughts far away from that scene of feasting. They were thinking of each other, and they were conscious of it. Timid, with the timidity of their second childhood, constrained and embarrassed by each other's presence, they were, nevertheless, in a little elysium of their own creating. They walked hand in hand in a delicious garden, where it was always autumn, together and alone they entered upon the long retarded romance of their commonplace and uneventful lives at last that great supper was over everything had been eaten the enormous roast goose had dwindled to a very skeleton mr sieppe had reduced the calf's head to a mere skull a row of empty champagne bottles dead soldiers as the facetious waiter had called them lined the mantelpiece none of the stewed prunes remained but the juice which was given to august and the twins the platters were as clean as if they had been washed. Crumbs of bread, potato parings, nutshells, and bits of cake littered the table. Coffee and ice-cream stains and spots of congealed gravy marked the position of each plate. It was a devastation, a pillage. The table presented the appearance of an abandoned battlefield. "'Oof!' cried Mrs. Sipa, pushing back. "'I've eaten and eaten. Ach, got. How I have eaten!' "'Ah, that cough's head!' murmured her husband, passing his tongue over his lips. The facetious waiter had disappeared. He and Maria Macapa foregathered in the kitchen. They drew up to the washboard of the sink, feasting off the remnants of the supper, slices of goose, the remains of the lobster salad, and half a bottle of champagne. They were obliged to drink the latter from teacups. Here's how, said the waiter gallantly, as he raised his teacup, bowing to Maria across the sink. Hark, he added, they're singing outside. The company had left the table and had assembled about the melodeon, where Selina was seated. At first they attempted some of the popular songs of the day, but were obliged to give over, as none of them knew any of the words beyond the first line of the chorus. Finally they pitched upon Nearer My God to Thee, as the only song which they all knew. Selina sang the alto, very much off the key. Marcus intoned the bass, scowling fiercely, his chin drawn into his collar. They sang in very slow time. The song became a dirge, a lamentable, prolonged wail of distress. "'Nira, my God, to thee, Nira, to thee At the end of the song, Uncle Olbermann put on his hat without a word of warning. Instantly there was a hush. The guests rose. "'Not going so soon, Uncle Olbermann,' protested Trina politely. He only nodded. Marcus sprang forward to help him with his overcoat. Mr. Sipa came up, and the two men shook hands. Then Uncle Olbermann delivered himself of an oracular phrase. No doubt he had been meditating it during the supper.' Addressing Mr. Sipa, he said, "'You have not lost a daughter, but have gained a son.' These were the only words he had spoken the entire evening. He departed. The company was profoundly impressed. About twenty minutes later, when Marcus Schuller was entertaining the guests by eating almonds, shells and all, Mr. Sipa started to his feet, watch in hand. half past eleven, he shouted. "'Attention! Der Dime half arrived. Stop everything. We depart.' "'This was a signal for tremendous confusion. "'Mr. Sipa immediately threw off his previous air of relaxation. "'The calf's head was forgotten. "'He was once again the leader of vast enterprises. "'To me, to me,' he cried. Mammer der Durvins, August. "'He marshaled his tribe together with tremendous commanding gestures. "'The sleeping twins were suddenly shaken into a dazed consciousness.' Auguste, whom the almond-eating of Marcus Schuler had petrified with admiration, was smacked to a realization of his surroundings. Old Grannis, with a certain delicacy that was one of his characteristics, felt instinctively that the guests, the mere outsiders, should depart before the family began its leave-taking of Trina. He withdrew unobtrusively, after a hasty good night to the bride and groom. The rest followed almost immediately. "'Well, Mr. Sipa,' exclaimed Marcus, "'we won't see each other for some time.' marcus had given up his first intention of joining in the sepa migration he spoke in a large way of certain affairs that would keep him in san francisco till the fall of late he had entertained ambitions of a ranch life he would breed cattle he had a little money and was only looking for someone to go in with he dreamed of a cowboy's life and saw himself in an entrancing vision involving silver spurs and untamed broncos he told himself that trina had cast him off that his best friend had played him for a sucker that the proper caper was to withdraw from the world entirely if you hear of anybody down there he went on speaking to mr Sipa, that wants to go in for ranching why just let me know so so answered mr Sipa abstractedly peering out for august's cap marcus bade the Sipas farewell he and hys went out together one heard them as they descended the stairs discussing the possibility of Frenna's place being still open then Miss Baker departed after kissing Trina on both cheeks. Selina went with her. There was only the family left. Trina watched them go, one by one, with an increasing feeling of uneasiness and vague apprehension. Soon they would all be gone. "'Well, Trina,' exclaimed Mr. Sipa, "'good-bye. "'Perhaps you come visit us some Mrs. Sipa began crying again. Ah, Trina, when shall I ever see you again?' Tears came to Trina's eyes in spite of herself she put her arms around her mother oh sometime, sometime, she cried the twins and august clung to trina's skirts fretting and whimpering mcteague was miserable he stood apart from the group in a corner none of them seemed to think of him he was not of them write to me very often mamma and tell me about everything about august and the twins it is time cried mr sieppe nervously good-bye trina mamma august say good-bye then we must go good-bye trina he kissed her Auguste and the twins were lifted up. "'Gum, gum,' insisted Mr. Sipa, moving toward the door. "'Good-bye, Trina,' exclaimed Mrs. Sipa, crying harder than ever. "'Doctor, where is the doctor? Doctor, be good to her, eh? Be very good, eh, won't you? Some day, doctor, you will have a daughter, then you know perhaps how I feel, yes.' They were standing at the door by this time. Mr. Sipa, halfway down the stairs, kept calling, "'Gum, Gom, we missed der train.' Missisipa released Trina and started down the hall, the twins and Auguste following. Trina stood in the doorway, looking after them through her tears. They were going, going. When would she ever see them again? She was to be left alone with this man to whom she had just been married. A sudden, vague terror seized her. She left McTeague and ran down the hall and caught her mother around the neck. "'I don't want you to go,' she whispered in her mother's ear, sobbing. "'Oh, Mama, I—I'm afraid.' ''Ark, Trina, you break my heart. Don't cry, poor little girl.'' She rocked Trina in her arms, as though she were a child again. ''Poor little scared girl, don't cry. So, 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 there's nothing to be afraid of. There, go to your husband. Listen, papa's calling again. Go then. Goodbye.'' She loosened Trina's arms and started down the stairs. Trina leaned over the banisters, straining her eyes after her mother. ''What is it, Trina?'' ''Oh, goodbye, goodbye.'' "'Come, come, we missed her train. Mamma, oh, mamma, what is it, Trina?' "'Good-bye. "'Good-bye, little daughter. "'Good-bye, good-bye, good-bye.' The street door closed. The silence was profound. For another moment Trina stood leaning over the banisters, looking down into the empty stairway. It was dark. There was nobody. They, her father, her mother, the children, had left her, left her alone.' She faced about toward the rooms, faced her husband, faced her new home, the new life that was to begin now. The hall was empty and deserted. The great flat around her seemed new and huge and strange. She felt horribly alone. Even Maria and the hired waiter were gone. On one of the floors above she heard a baby crying. She stood there an instant in the dark hall, in her wedding finery, looking about her, listening. From the open door of the sitting-room streamed a gold bar of light. She went down the hall, by the open door of the sitting-room, going on toward the hall door of the bedroom. As she softly passed the sitting-room, she glanced hastily in. The lamps and the gas were burning brightly. The chairs were pushed back from the table just as the guests had left them, and the table itself, abandoned, deserted, presented to view the vague confusion of its dishes, its knives and forks, its empty platters, and crumpled napkins. The dentist sat there, leaning on his elbows, his back toward her. Against the white blur of the table, he looked colossal, Above his giant shoulders rose his thick, red neck and mane of yellow hair. The light shone pink through the gristle of his enormous ears. Trina entered the bedroom, closing the door after her. At the sound, she heard McTeague start and rise. Is that you, Trina? She did not answer, but paused in the middle of the room, holding her breath, trembling. The dentist crossed the outside room, parted the chenille portieres, and came in. He came toward her quickly, making as if to take her in his arms— His eyes were alight. ''No, no!'' cried Trina, shrinking from him. Suddenly, seized with the fear of him, the intuitive feminine fear of the male, her whole being quailed before him. She was terrified at his huge, square-cut head, his powerful, salient jaw, his huge red hands, his enormous, resistless strength. ''No, no, I'm afraid!'' she cried, drawing back from him to the other side of the room. ''Afraid?'' answered the dentist in perplexity. What are you afraid of, Trina? I'm not going to hurt you. What are you afraid of? What indeed was Trina afraid of? She could not tell. But what did she know of McTeague after all? Who was this man that had come into her life, who had taken her from her home and from her parents, and with whom she was now left alone here in this strange, vast flat? Oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, she cried. McTeague came nearer, sat down beside her, and put one arm around her. What are you afraid of, Trina? he said reassuringly. I don't want to frighten you. She looked at him wildly, her adorable little chin quivering, the tears brimming in her narrow blue eyes. Then her glance took on a certain intentness, and she peered curiously into his face, saying almost in a whisper, "'I'm afraid of you.' But the dentist did not heed her. An immense joy seized upon him, the joy of possession. Trina was his very own now. She lay there in the hollow of his arm, helpless and very pretty. Those instincts that in him were so close to the surface suddenly leaped to life, shouting and clamoring, not to be resisted. He loved her. Ah, did he not love her? The smell of her hair, of her neck, rose to him. Suddenly he caught her in both his huge arms, crushing down her struggle with his immense strength, kissing her full upon the mouth. Then her great love for McTeague suddenly flashed up in Trina's breast. She gave up to him as she had done before, yielding all at once to that strange desire of being conquered and subdued. She clung to him, her hands clasped behind his neck, whispering in his ear, Oh, you must be good to me, very, very good to me, dear, for you're all that I have in this world now. End of chapter 9